Today on Ag News Daily. Convenient for the producer, but also make sure that we're, we're mixing them appropriately to limit the contamination that may occur. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Delaney Howell, one of the hosts for the Ag News Daily Podcast, and I'm flying solo today. We've got Madison Honkamp, our intern, joining us tomorrow, and a special Friday guest on Friday, so do stay tuned for that. Again, a reminder, folks, Mike is going to be out here for a couple of months, but if any of you would like to co-host with me on a Friday episode, feel free to shoot me a message on Twitter on Facebook. You can shoot it to Ag News Daily or you can shoot it to me personally. We'd love to have some fresh voices on. But to kick off today's news, let's start here with kind of the big thing we left up in the air yesterday, and that was President Trump's State of the Union address. He gave that address last night. I think, if I remember correctly, he spoke for about an hour and 20 minutes, which is pretty unusual for a president to speak that long. He did make some references to agriculture and a couple of things I think are worth highlighting on the podcast today. He definitely talked quite a bit about his tariff and trade policies and he he basically asked Congress to kind of streamline the process here to get the USMCA agreement voted on in place, etc. He said This is, you know, a big win for the U.S., and it's been done during his presidency. He asked Democrats to, you know, really think about this and and go ahead and vote yes on that. A couple other things, not necessarily mentioned from the State of the Union address, but definitely kind of revolving around President Trump and trade and whatnot. He did say that he will meet with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un in Vietnam on February 27th and 28th. And he also made reference that if he does go on this trip to see Kim Jong-un, he might as well and go see President Xi while he's at it, just ahead of that March 1st deadline. He, of course, asked Congress not only for the USMCA agreement, but also asked them to pass legislation that was presented originally by Representative Sean Duffy from Wisconsin, which would essentially expand his power to impose tariffs in response to other nations' duties and tariffs. But of course, as we've talked about here on the podcast before, many lawmakers are kind of wanting to take the opposite approach and limit President Trump's powers, especially when it comes to imposing tariffs. A bipartisan group led by Senator Rob Portman is already planning to file legislation today, actually, that would scale back President Trump's tariff authority and give power back to Congress to block duties imposed by the president for national security reasonings. And Grassley, I was a senior, senior Senator Chuck Grassley, will actually have a huge hand in advancing Trump's agenda today through Congress which was indicated by Portman's measure, um, and it might be preferable to a similar bill from Senator Pat Toomey, which he said was probably too blunt. But the finance chair has yet to endorse a plan, and they're looking for a compromise to basically rein in President Trump's power, but also, you know, stay, I guess, good within party lines. Also going on today in the Hill... U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer is set to meet with the Senate Finance Committee and the Senate Advisory Group on negotiations, basically to discuss U.S. and Chinese negotiations. 
We've also got more than 100 businesses and farmers swarming Capitol Hill today to pressure lawmakers and the Trump administration to end the trade war. All of this is really going ahead, going going on just ahead of the March 15th deadline, or excuse me, the February 15th deadline, which is when again the government goes into shutdown mode, and that is just next Friday. So we're still watching to see what happens there as well. Um, during his uh, State of the Union address, it was noted by many, especially in the ag industry, that President Trump made little to no reference about the farm bill. He cited the 2018 farm bill as an example of what is possible to do with bipartisanship, but really didn't touch on that a whole lot. Didn't give a specific date for when he would meet with China. Some of those big things that a lot of reporters and people were speculating on ahead of time really didn't happen during his state of the union address. So those are just some things that we're going to have to continue to watch. Hopefully he, um, he makes some references to those here in the future, but at this point in time, not something that he decided to touch on yesterday. We know that Secretary Wheeler, EPA Administrator Wheeler, excuse me, um, met in front of the full Senate, and they were going to be taking a full vote on his nomination here in the coming weeks. It's expected that he should pass through with flying colors, although he still hasn't really made any mention to his stance on the economic hardship waivers for the ethanol industry, as well as really where he sits with E15 year-round. And Secretary Perdue made mention of this specific issue, which has a lot of producers and farmers worried, and said in a one-on-one -on -one interview last week that, quote, I visited with Administrator Wheeler last week, and that was one of the questions I posed to him. He told me that things were moving well, even in spite of the shutdown, and that they did feel that they could accomplish these rules prior to the driving season, which was good news. So it sounds like Secretary Purdue is still confident that this is going to get pushed through. It sounds like quite a few of our folks out in D.C. also sound like that is going to get through. They're really putting some pressure on him, on Andrew Wheeler. But overall, it sounds like that is going to get pushed through. However, I think if we do see another government shutdown next Friday, again, that question gets posed. Is this going to be a top priority for the administration? Hard to say, but we will see moving forward. Of course, he still has to get 100% confirmed. And also, talking a little bit about Administrator Wheeler and WOTUS, he is making some statements about WOTUS, or Waters of the U.S. Fresh from having his nomination advanced in the Senate committee, he will be in Georgia today to promote the Trump administration's revisions of the Waters of the U.S. rule. He is also going to be joined by David Ross, the EPA's Assistant Administrator for Water, to discuss the administration's policy on nutrient management. And the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee approved Wheeler's nomination on a 11 to 10 party line vote on Tuesday. Of course, as we know, the nomination moves to the Senate floor, which should be voted on here in the next couple of weeks. But he's already been acting as the head administrator since Scott Pruitt left the position last year. So like I said, I think it'll be a pretty easy um, push for him, an easy way to get him nominated and voted in. 
But that is another thing we are watching in D.C. And another thing that if government shutdown happens once again, they're going to have to put that vote on hold. In other news, the Purdue Ag Economy Barometer, which is a measure of producer and producer sentiment, they do a monthly study related to various issues affecting rural America. They've done another study about farmer optimism and farmers, how they feel about rural and farmland and agriculture in general. Producers are more optimistic about the farm economy following the enactment of the new farm bill and the announcement that the USDA is making that second round of market facilitation program payments according to their latest survey. However, farmers are still concerned about the stability of farmland values and that 25% of U.S. soybean growers surveyed plan to reduce their acreage this year. The Ag Economy Barometer, which is again another measure of producers and producer sentiment, registered at 143 in January, which is a 16-point increase over December and the highest measure since June of 2018. So it sounds like, as a whole, producer sentiment is on the up and up, but definitely something to continue to watch as we near that March 1st deadline. Another quick little piece of news here before we jump over into the news. As we talk about soybeans and how much soybeans have held clout in these trade negotiations, Associated Press put together an interesting article called A Hill of Beans, Soybeans Upstage Trade Talks. Essentially, this article is talking about how, you know, soybeans have taken kind of a front seat here in the ongoing negotiations with China, but soybeans themselves account for less than 1% of all goods and services that the United States sells to the rest of the world. However, they are upstaging really a lot of other industries and the outsized importance of soybeans, which are mostly used by animal feed and human consumption, um, has again taken the front seat here during the two-day China U.S. trade talks that happened last week. So just an interesting little article there. I thought I would just mention some quick stats from that. With that, unfortunately, it's been a pretty slow news day again today. So I think I'm going to hop over here and look into today's markets, which of course are sponsored by our friends at the Zaner Group. You can give them a call anytime at 312-277-0050 and i encourage you guys to stay tuned in for market monday on monday because we will have one of their regular market analysts ted seifert on to break down what's going on in the commodity markets but for today's closes we didn't have a lot of excitement here some folks were expecting maybe some announcements from president trump in regards to u.s china trade negotiations which would maybe give some life to the soybean markets but we really didn't see that happen for today in the march corn contract we closed down three quarters of a cent to end at 380 even while the may closed down a penny to end at 388 in the soybean pits closed up just slightly on the day with the march contract up a penny and a half at 921 and three quarters while the May up a penny and a half as well at 9.35 and three quarters. Hopping over into the wheat pits, just a little bit of a loss today in the March contract, down a penny and a quarter at 5.26, while the May lost half a cent at 5.28 and three quarters. Looking over into the livestock markets, we see red across the screen, starting with the February live cattle contract down 30 cents today at 126.40, while the April gave up 47.5 cents to close at 127.15. In the feeder cattle pits, the March contract down 65 cents to close at 143.17.5, and a half, 
while the April gave up 60 cents to close at 144.85. Looking over to the lean hog markets, the February contract cut 50 cents today to end at 55.92.5, while the April down 70 to close at 60.90. And rounding out our markets with the dairy parlor. February class 3 milk closed down 2 cents at 13.91, while the March was in the green 16 cents to close at 14.36. For today's interviews, I'm going to be talking to two veterinarians with Zoetis, really covering again some animal health as it relates to the beef industry and some of my coverage from the National Cattlemen's Convention. Here at the Zoetis booth with Dr. Mark Alley, who is a senior veterinarian for Zoetis. Uh, Dr. Alley, tell me a little bit more about your role within Zoetis as a senior veterinarian. Uh, so I provide technical support to uh, several TBMs in the southeast area covering Georgia up to um, a little bit north of Maryland, a little bit of uh, eastern Tennessee and eastern Kentucky. And what does the breakdown look like? Is that feedlot area? Is that cow-calf? Uh, so this area is primarily uh, stocker cattle and cow-calf. Uh, we have some small feedlots, but not very many compared to other parts of the country. And as a senior veterinarian for Zoetis, are you just going out to these different, uh, different operations and prescribing your recommendations for medications or how does what are you doing so a lot of times what we do is we provide support to our sales team and that will consist of working with uh, veterinarians that may be local that may have questions specifically about the products or in addition we may actually spend some time talking to producers educating them about the products or other management things that may improve the profitability and the production of their particular animals and you're also educating people here at the NCBA convention. Yes, One are. of the neat things that you guys are doing at your booth is you're basically showing people how to properly mix drugs. Can you walk me through that process? Yeah, so what we're doing is uh, we're taking a new product that Zoetis has. It's called a TransClip. And it's uh, basically a disposable form of a transfer needle. And it's a, it's a plastic um, device that is disposable. And it allows us to be able to mix these vaccines at a period of time when it's going to be um, convenient for the producer, but also make sure that we're, we're mixing them appropriately, limit the contamination that may occur. So what we end up doing first is we take the, the plastic trans clip. We have two bottles here. Um, that has some modified live components to it, and most of the time uh, you have to mix those products together. So what we'll do is we'll take the liquid portion first, and we'll take our trans clip, click it over the top of our bottle. And I'm pushing down on it pretty hard to make sure that's completely seated into the, the stopper. And then what we'll do is we'll turn that over, and we'll actually inject or uh, puncture the, the powder formation of our vaccine. And once we do that and it's completely um, there together, what we'll have is the liquid go into that. We'll slowly rotate that back and forth, and then we'll uh, have that vaccine available to go ahead and vaccinate our calves when we're ready. Dr. Ali, this maybe seems like a silly question, but do you find that a lot of folks don't know how to properly mix vaccines? A lot of times, whenever people get ready to start doing these, what they'll end up doing is that they will... Um, spend time contaminating the vaccine. So what we want to try to do is we want to try to keep that as sterile as possible. And anything that we can do to minimize that, uh, we are going to be able to try to do. And that's going to be part of what we're trying to achieve with the trans clip is to make sure that 
Um, there's limit our contamination. Try to keep it as clean as possible because that's going to have a negative impact on our ability for those animals to respond to our vaccines. And when you say contaminating, are you saying just being unsterile or unclean? It could be dirt. It could be any time that we're out doing these and we're getting ready to prepare these, a lot of times we'll, um, it's not a sterile environment. So you've got dust, you've got bacteria, you've got all those things in the um, environment, and all of that is very easily to get into our products. So this transclip, which is maybe kind of the key here, is that a Zoetis-only product, or is that something that's kind of universal across the industry? So this is a, um, a fairly new uh, product. Most of the transfer needles that have historically been around have actually been metal. Um, and making sure that you keep those clean in between uh, has been a little bit of a challenge. So the transclip is one that's actually disposable so that we can actually use that and limit our contamination from... Um, one working to the next uh, when we get ready to start mixing those. So is it a one-time use? It's a one-time use. It's a one-time use so that we're going to dispose of it after we get done. And it, I mean, so it that looks... we don't have the other um, any other products or any other vaccines that may be contaminant um, because when you get ready to start using these, there's going to be several different things, several different products that may need to be mixed. So if you take this that was used to mix one vaccine and then you get ready to mix it into another vaccine, you very likely could get some contamination or there may be some components in there that may interfere with the vaccine once it goes into the animal. And this is not something that's specific to only cattle production. I mean, you could use it in, in hogs or... That's correct. Anytime that you get ready to start mixing vaccines, you absolutely can use it. How does it work then if I'm a producer and I, I want to use this product? Do I have to buy Zoetis products or can you buy the transclips by um, themselves? So the transclips uh, are going to be end up being shipped with the Zoetis products. So they're, right now, as far as I'm aware, they're not able to be sold as a separate uh, product outside of the Zoetis line of products. When you compare these, though, to the metal type of uh, transfer needles, what benefits have you seen using these, these plastic transclips? The, uh, the primary thing that you'll end up seeing is that vaccine reactions, as far as like lumps and bumps that may be a part of your contamination whenever we get ready to give these vaccines, we're going to see some reduction in some of those. Uh, and then also they don't have to worry about keeping that metal transfer needle actually sterile. So that's our biggest challenge is a lot of times those transfer needles will be left out on the the shelf or the chute or something like that that may contaminate those needles. Does Zoetis have any educational resources for producers that think, man, maybe I better brush up on my uh, mixing? So the main thing that uh, we try to encourage people to do is beef quality assurance is a primary way for people to start thinking about how to use products appropriately, making sure that they're giving them at the right time, mixing products, keeping everything um, uh, refrigerated appropriately, stored appropriately, and then use getting them mixed up and getting them ready when I get ready to uh, give them to the cattle. Perfect. Dr. Alley, thank you so much. Thank you. Still here at the Zoetis booth with Dr. Doug Hilbig, who is a senior tech services vet for Zoetis. Dr. Hilbig, tell me about your role. And you're in Oklahoma area, is that right? So I am in Oklahoma. So I cover uh, probably about a third to a half of Kansas, uh, almost all the state of Oklahoma, part of southwest Missouri, and a little bit of Arkansas. That is big cattle country. What are you doing with producers in that area? Are you working with cow-calf stalkers, feeders? 
Yes, all the above. So we do have a little bit of all. So I spent most of my career in dealing with stockers, cow-calf, and, and then feedlots. So I was a feedlot consultant in southwest Kansas also. So transitioning over to this job, I probably do a lot more stocker and cow-calf than I did while I was in practice and maybe a little less feed yard. But, you know, high-risk cattle, the stocker cattle is kind of what I've always done since being out in practice. When you say high-risk cattle, explain to me what you mean by that. So high-risk cattle are typically cattle that are bought um, in sale barns, a lot of times bought one at a time. So people that take their calves in, uh, buyers will buy those cattle up due to the size, whatever somebody's ordered up, size-wise, type of calf that they get. And a lot of times they end up having a very uniform uh, group of cattle but they may be from very, very multiple sources. Due to the commingling uh, effect of those, they're a high risk. They're just higher risk of, of health issues. Doesn't mean they always do, it's just they have a higher risk of having uh, potential problems. Absolutely, so when you look at those cattle, commingling is a huge issue. What are you doing to advise producers about vaccinations or the way that they're integrating those cattle back into their operations? So probably part of the biggest deal is their ability for biosecurity, their ability to reduce stress on them. The cattle that we do know that are stressed, that we do know that have a higher risk of having some illnesses, a lot of times they may end up having to give antibiotics because a portion of those cattle are already sick. What we found out through the industry that if I... On, those, on these types of cattle, on arrival, if I only treat the sick ones, a lot of times I have a lot more sick cattle that I'm not able to notice. So ultimately the disease level in that whole population is higher and ultimately in the long term I end up having more morbidity and more mortality. So a lot of times what we do, help producers, help veterinarians be able to make decisions on where it's better to be able to just treat the sick cattle or sometimes it's better to, to, to treat the whole group. They've all been exposed, they've all been through a lot of stress and then we put them into a new new situation. Yeah, that makes sense. Just treat them all so then if they get sick or haven't been sick yet, they're covered. When you look at antibiotic usage, that's kind of a hot button issue right now in ag, especially from a consumer facing standpoint. How are you advising producers to handle that or the argument that antibiotics aren't safe to use or what, what's the Zoetis vision for that? So, so the proper use of antibiotics would be not using or it shouldn't be. So there are a lot of cattle that are healthy. They make the transition from, from cow-calf into stalker, from stalker into the feedlot. They've got a good immunity. They've gone through a, a minimal or low stress environment with really healthy, healthy type cattle. So they've not, their, their transition to the next level is probably not gonna re- end up in them having some illness. On those cattle, there's no need to give any kind of an antibiotic. Those cattle, day in, day out, whenever you're dealing with them, the potential for them to get sick is very, very low, 1% to 3%. Why would I want to give any cattle antibiotics until they're sick in that situation versus when we get into situations where they're 30 to 50 to 70% chance of those cattle getting sick on those, those are the ones that if we don't treat them, 
the the number of those cattle with a mortality with the risk of dying is going to be very elevated in those situations if they use the antibiotic use the proper antibiotic you're able to treat them and be done the resistance that's the resistance that's potentially there will be gone by the time these animals are harvested so usually we'll treat those cattle those cattle are probably going to stay in that feed yard for another six to seven months so if we can do it right on arrival those cattle won't be getting treated the rest of the time they're on feed. And I was talking to Dr. Ali and uh, didn't catch this in the, inter- in the interview with him, so I wanted to make sure I asked you about it, but that is the efficacy of drugs. He recommended there's a, a time limit, essentially, that you should mix drugs for, what, 30, 45 minutes and not mix ahead of that when you're vaccinating? Well, so on our vaccines, some of our vaccines are modified live, which means when we mix it, we have, we have a dry cake and then we have a sterile diluent. So once we mix those together, they're actually a live virus. So it's been modified so it doesn't cause disease in the animal, but yet it still retains enough of the original, the wild uh, uh, aspects of the virus that will still develop immunity. A lot of times if I mix those and I wait too long, those are designed to be able to be mixed and used. And so within about the first hour, hour and a half is ideal. A lot of people may mix it, something happens, they've got enough doses mixed up for all the cattle that are going to work, and it ends up taking them three or four hours. A portion of those cattle don't respond because that that virus is no longer viable. It's no longer live. So when I do put it in the cattle, I don't get the response that I should. So is it essentially like injecting almost a placebo drug at that point if you waited too long? Yes. So it's actually, it would be like just injecting saline. So it does you no good. You know, you don't have anything to stimulate the immune system. And what we're looking for on a modified live is we're actually looking for the body to respond like it normally would. We want it to get processed through the, through the immune system and develop a memory, per se, for the immune system so that when it sees this pathogen again later, it responds to it. If it doesn't replicate, a lot of times the body's not going to respond to it again. When you look at either antibiotic usage or vaccination, what do you see as being like the number one common mistake that producers make? Well, so depending on on the antibiotics, um, a lot of times we'll have people that will use longer acting antibiotics and not wait for it to work. Some of these antibiotics will work seven to 10 days and they're trying to retreat animals two days later. So it would be no different than you your doc, your physician giving you a, a regime of antibiotics and after you've taken a couple of days of them you decide ah, I'm going to get on to something else. You really haven't allowed that antibiotic to, to work the way it should. The second biggest thing is is people miss dose. So it would be no different than doctor gives you antibiotics and you go ah, I'm just going to take half as much of them. So if we do low dose so if we have an injectable antibiotic that we're using and we just low dose it, we're actually not going to get the, the, the expected outcome that we think we should. In fact, doing that, we're probably going to um, select for resistance. So if I do this often enough, now I'm, gonna, I'm actually producing some resistant bacteria because I'm not dosing them high enough. The other thing that we'll see is the old adage, if a little is good, a lot's better. 
you're probably not going to be selecting for resistance, but what you do do is now the cost is a lot higher. You know, the labeled dose is the ideal dose for the pathogens that you're going to see and also the animals that are going to get treated. These aren't cheap antibiotics. They are, they do have a value to them. So when people just say, I'm just going to give whatever dose I think I ought to without looking on the bottle, without trying to get relatively close to what the actual dosage is, a lot of times they're just giving money away. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess with that being said, is the best thing to do to always consult a veterinarian or a pharmaceutical rep, or do you think it's more just producers are being maybe complacent? No, so it is It is good to always, you know, discuss any treatments with your, with your veterinarian. Veterinarian's essential part of this, but also on every bottle, every bottle of antibiotic, there is a, a drug dosage that's on there. So know what the weight of your cattle are, be very, fairly accurate for what they are, and then calculate that dosage to what the bottle says. Give it at that point. A lot of times people will just say, I'm going to go to whatever my syringe holds. Well, you know, a lot of times if you're just doing what my syringe holds, you're either vastly underdosing or vastly overdosing. If you discuss with your veterinarian, what's my dosage? Is this the actual dosage range I should be giving? Most of the time your veterinarian is going to say, yeah. If not, your veterinarian sometimes has the knowledge of if I should be giving a higher dose or not. You know, there, if there's different diseases that are going on, they have the, the knowledge to know, should I be given a different dosage? If in doubt, look on the bottle. The bottle dosage has a lot of, exper- a lot of uh, research behind it, lets you know for the disease that you're trying to treat, what that dosage range should be. All right, Dr. Hilbig, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Again, great stuff there with those two veterinarians. I think it's really fascinating to see Folks, go out, practice in the industry, and then come back and maybe work for, you know, pharmaceutical companies, maybe teach in the industry, work in academics, but definitely some interesting stuff going on there. We're going to continue coverage of the NCBA convention as well as the Iowa Farming and Power Show here over the next couple of days. But if you know of anything that we should be covering here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, feel free to drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or find us at our new home, globalagnetwork.com. You can shoot us a quick note there as well and catch up on any of our past episodes. With that, I'm going to let everyone go. (laughs) 